Hello and welcome to session two of Is the Word Really Alive? Let's pray together as we start. Our Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for your kindness to us in giving us your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and in giving us your Holy Spirit. We pray that you would help us now as we seek to understand more of the work of your Spirit in authoring your Word. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we thought in the first session about some of the challenges to the authority of Scripture, and in particular whether it's possible to separate believing in Jesus from believing in the Bible. And I argued there that that is not possible, given that Jesus himself teaches the authority of the Scriptures. And we come now in this session to a second reason why that is not possible, and why it matters that we cling to the Scriptures. And that is because God the Spirit breathed the Scriptures. This is known in the history of the Church as the doctrine of the inspiration of Scripture. And there's a close connection between the inspiration of Scripture, the fact that it is breathed by the Holy Spirit, and the authority of Scripture. The reason it is authoritative is because of its author, we might say. Now, how can we explain what we mean by the inspiration of Scripture? And it can be put very simply. Uh, Augustine put it uh, very well when he said that God says, what my Scripture says, I say. That's the implication of the doctrine of Scripture, that what Scripture says, God says. A modern theologian, Kevin Van Hooser, talks about the identity thesis, which is another helpful way of putting it, that the, the words of the human authors of Scripture are identical with the words of God. There is an identity between the two. That is what it means to say that Scripture is inspired. What Scripture says, God says. It's important to note that how that comes about, how it is that the human authors of Scripture wrote what God also says, uh, varies between the different books. And you can think of some obvious examples of this. Uh, the Lord Jesus says in the book of Revelation, for example, to the church in Smyrna, write. And then he evidently dictates the content of his letter to John. Whereas we read at the beginning of Luke's Gospel that Luke went away and did his research and talked to eyewitnesses and consulted different people about what had happened in the life, death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. So the two processes would have been very different for authoring those parts of the book of Revelation and authoring Luke's Gospel. And there were presumably many other ways in which the word of God came to and through the human authors. We don't need to think that that's, that only happened in one particular way or was always the same. The evidence is against that. But one way or another, by different means, we end up with a situation where what Scripture says, God says. And one really excellent way of seeing this is to look at the way that the New Testament quotes the Old Testament and who it says spoke the words that it quotes from the Old Testament. When we look at these passages where the New Testament quotes the Old Testament, we find two different patterns. We find that it moves in two different directions in terms of to whom it attributes the Old Testament verses. So we might speak of reversed attributions here. 
And what I mean by that is that we find in many places that the New Testament quotes from the Old Testament something, and it says, God says this. But when you actually go back into the Old Testament and look at the passage that's being quoted, in that passage in the Old Testament, it's not God who is speaking. The character God, if you like, is not speaking in the words that are being quoted in the New Testament from the Old Testament. But nonetheless, the New Testament author says, God said this. And then the same thing happens the other way around. We'll explore that in a moment. But let me show you with an example. So take up your Bibles, please, and turn to Matthew chapter 19. uh, And then we'll go back to Genesis chapter 2. So you're going to need to be a little bit agile at this point to keep a finger in both passages so that I can show you what I'm talking about with an example. So Matthew 19, verse 3, the Pharisees came up to Jesus and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He, Jesus, answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. Now, who does Jesus say said that? Do you notice? He who created them, them from the beginning said, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. So Jesus is saying in Matthew 19 that God said that. But turn back, please, to Genesis chapter 2 to find the uh, section that he's quoting, or the verse that he's quoting, which is Genesis 2 verse 24, and you will notice that it says, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh, but that in the text of Genesis 2, those are not words being quoted from God. Unlike, for example, verse 18, Then the Lord God said, it's not good that man should be alone. That's not what's happening in verse 24. It's the narrator. It's the author of Genesis saying this. And yet Jesus, the Lord Jesus, our prophet, who tells us what we must think and believe, quotes it as being what God said. So the implication is clear, isn't it? That the words of the text of Genesis, which are not the words of God in the text, not God speaking in the text, and nonetheless the words of God. Because what scripture says, God says. Let me give you one more example. Let's turn to Acts chapter 4. And what you find in Acts 4 is a quotation from Psalm 2. So Acts chapter 4, let's pick it up at verse uh, 25, I think. Um, is about the right place to pick it up. Who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit. So who's this referring to? Well, have a look back to verse 24. When they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit... Then the quotation from Psalm 2. Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. So this is clearly being ascribed here to God himself, the sovereign Lord, to whom they're praying, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit. But so now do the same thing and go back to Psalm 2. 
And what you find in Psalm 2 is that there are parts here which are the direct speech of God. For example, verse 7, The Lord said to me, You are my son. But that this part is not direct speech from God in the psalm. It's the opening verses which are not speech from God. And yet, here in Acts, they're being introduced, these words from Psalm 2 are being introduced as the words of the sovereign Lord, who through David said, by the Holy Spirit. So these are introduced as the words of God. Now this is a repeated phenomenon in the New Testament. I won't go through the other references, but you might like to look at Acts 13, verse 35. Well, there are a lot of uh, occasions where this happens in Hebrews 1, verse 6, verses 8 to 9, verses 10 to 12. And you can do the same exercise. Go back to the Old Testament text, which is being quoted. You'll find the references in the margins of your Bible, probably. Look at who says it in the original, and you'll find there that it wasn't God speaking it. It's the narrator saying it. And yet, repeatedly, in these New Testament texts, these words of the narrator are introduced as the words of God. And then it happens the other way around as well. In this instance, what you find is that words are quoted from the Old Testament in the New Testament as the words of a human being, a prophet, for example. And yet when you go back to their Old Testament context, they are there words which are divine speech. It is God himself speaking in the context of the Old Testament. I'll give you an example of this. Let's think of a, a passage we thought about in the last session, about Mark chapter 7, and the quotation in Mark seven ten. So this is Jesus again engaging in that debate that we looked at. You have a fine way of rejecting the commandments of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honour your father and your mother. Oh, you think I, I know where that comes from. That's one of the Ten Commandments. Indeed it is. So, well, then you know where to go. You go back to Exodus chapter 20, for example, and you find in Exodus chapter 20, who says this? Well, you know who says it, don't you? Honour your father and your mother, verse 12. Well, what do we read in verse 1? And God spoke all these words, saying. So it was God speaking it, not Moses speaking it. Moses, it seems to me here in, in, in Mark chapter 7, is being identified by the Lord Jesus as the human author of Exodus. So a word which in the original context is the speech of God himself is quoted by the Lord Jesus Christ himself. It's the words of Moses. Again, I won't go through other examples of this, but you find it in Matthew 15, verses 7 to 9. You find it happening several times in Romans. You could look at Romans 9, 17, 10, 5, 10, 19 to 21. This same phenomenon. Words which in the Old Testament are words of God ascribed to the human author in the New Testament. And what is particularly interesting then is, it, then, is that it goes both ways, uh, that you can, you can move so seamlessly between the two, or rather the authors of the New Testament can move so seamlessly between the two, so that at one time they will say that the words of the human narrator are the words of God, and on another occasion they'll say the words of God are the words of the human author. And what that tells you is that what Scripture says, God says. What God says, Scripture says. 
Now that's clear with the Old Testament, but what about the New Testament, we might say? Well, how, how, how do we see what's going on with the New Testament, which of course wasn't yet written? Well, we find a number of indications in the teaching of the Lord Jesus about the status of the New Testament. One striking one comes in Mark 13, that great discourse about the destruction of Jerusalem and the end of the world. And the Lord Jesus says in Mark 13, verse 30, Truly I tell you this very night... Uh, no, he doesn't. That's the wrong passage. That's Mark 14. Let's turn back to Mark 13. Uh, he says, Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. And so he ascribes there an extraordinary authority to his own teaching. And you can't help but think that it's an echo of what would have been known uh, to the Jews from Isaiah. Isaiah 40, verse 8, The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. They would have known that. They would have known that the word of God stands forever. But here is Jesus saying, His words will never pass away. What an extraordinary claim. Equating, therefore, his words with the words of God. And then we can push ahead to see how this extends not only to Jesus' words in the New Testament, but also to the words of his apostles. Because we know that he promised them, and we touched on this passage last time, John 14 to 16, we know that he promised them the assistance, the empowerment of the Holy Spirit to guide them, to bring things to their remembrance. The helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. That's the passage from John 14, 26 that we looked at last time. You find similar things in 15, verse 26. When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. So the Spirit witnesses to them about Jesus. So the disciples, therefore, are promised the assistance of the Holy Spirit in recalling and passing on the teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ. 16 verse 13, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. So Jesus promises his disciples the help of the Holy Spirit. And then indeed, at the end of John's Gospel, uh, chapter 20, verse 22, he breathes out the Spirit on his disciples. So actually, even within the pages of John's Gospel, we see this happening, this giving of the Spirit to the disciples. And that's why he can send them out, as he does in the Great Commission, Matthew 28, verses 18 to 20, to teach with such authority, because they are empowered by the Spirit. And it's no surprise then that we find, even within the pages of the New Testament itself, indications that the writings of the apostles are to be viewed as scripture. And a nice example of this comes in 1 Timothy. Please turn to 1 Timothy 5 to see this. Verse 17. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honour, especially those who labour in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, 
You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the labourer deserves his wages. Now, as you can see there, we've got quotations from the scripture. But it's a combination. It's not only Deuteronomy 25, verse 4, but it's also Luke 10, verse 7. So we have words from within the New Testament being quoted in the New Testament as scripture. And a similar thing occurs with Paul's writing when Peter talks about it. This lovely, encouraging statement for those of us who wrestle with portions of Paul's teaching, trying to understand them. Peter says in uh, 2 Peter 3, verse 15, And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you, according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction, as they do the other scriptures. It's a great verse, isn't it, to encourage us if we find something that Paul says hard to understand, we find ourselves wrestling with it. Well, Peter found that too. But the important thing to note here for our purposes is that people were twisting Paul's writings as they were twisting the other scriptures, so that Peter is already there identifying the writings of Paul as themselves scripture. So there's some evidence then uh, for the inspiration and authority of the text of the Old Testament and of the New Testament, because it is authored by the Holy Spirit of God. It's worth saying that... Um, Probably our, our challenge is not going to be so much to just reject the Bible, is it? What we're, we're more likely to do, I think, is to try to narrow it down. It's unlikely that somebody, even the most liberal Christian, ever gets to the point of saying, well, let's just ditch the whole Bible. It's more likely that we're going to try to narrow to maybe some sort of core within the scriptures that we still adhere to, while trying to leave behind some of what we regard as the peripheral things. That's called having a canon within the canon. You remember, the canon is the, the list of authoritative books of Scripture. To have a canon within the canon is to, is to say, well, actually, this is the inner core, which is really authoritative. Um, in effect, it's a way of shrinking your Bible. Um, and there are some famous examples of this in history. Um, in the early church, a figure like Marcion, for example, who prunes away the Old Testament, but then, of course, realises that there's rather a lot of Old Testament quoted in the New Testament, too. So you have to prune away those bits of the New Testament. Even Martin Luther himself said some pretty negative things about portions of Scripture. So we need to be careful about this. This is probably going to be our temptation rather than just an outright rejecting of the whole of the Scriptures. To, we want to come up with, in effect, a sort of sanitised, culturally acceptable Bible. Well, we can't do that. Now, the question that raises uh, is this. Well, how much of the text is inspired? Is the whole thing inspired, or is it just parts of it that are inspired? Because if it's just parts of it, well, maybe we, maybe we could leave the other bits. But if it's the whole thing, we have to submit to the whole thing. Could we say maybe the Gospels are the inspired part, or are there particular... Maybe it's the theological teaching of Scripture that binds us, but not the historical statements of Scripture. Or maybe it's, it's not so much every part of a book, it's the sort of core message of a book that binds us. Or even just the message of a chapter or key verses or something like that. We can't say that because 
Scripture itself teaches, the Lord Jesus himself teaches, what is known as the plenary verbal inspiration of Scripture. Now that's a bit of a mouthful, isn't it? Plenary simply means full. Verbal is a way of referring to the words of Scripture. The full inspiration of the words of Scripture is what we're talking about here. I'll give you an example where this becomes clear. If you turn to Matthew 22... Uh, in fact, our next couple of examples are going to come from Matthew 22. Matthew 22, verse 31. Again, it's, a, um, it's the, the controversy about the resurrection with the Sadducees. And Jesus says this. As for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. So Jesus' argument here rests on um, the words, I am the God of these people. And if he is the God of these people, then they must be alive. They must uh, not be finished forever. So uh, Jesus is resting a great deal on particular words, not many words of a verse from the Old Testament there. A lot is staked on a few words from the book of Exodus in this case. But actually we can get, we can get it even tighter than that because in the same chapter, we find a really extraordinary uh, weight placed on the detail of the Old Testament. So look down to the controversy about whose son is the Christ that begins in verse 41. Let me read it. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And they said to him, The son of David. He said to them, How is it then that David in the Spirit calls him Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. So what Jesus is doing there is he's referencing the psalm and he's saying, the Lord said to my Lord. Well, in those words, David calls him, the Christ, my Lord. Now, in the Hebrew of the text here, which Jesus is uh, quoting, the, the, the specification that the Lord is my Lord is made by a single letter on the end of a Hebrew word, and it's the tiniest letter of the Hebrew alphabet, a little, little yod, it looks just like that. And so Jesus rests his entire argument here about the Messiah being the Lord of David on one tiny letter of the Hebrew text. That fits, doesn't it, with what he says earlier in Matthew's Gospel when he talks about uh, the authority of the law and the prophets. And he describes uh, how, in the old translation, um, the jots and tittles are authoritative. The tiny, tiny strokes of the Hebrew letters are authoritative. So that... Uh, a modern writer, John Murray, says that we shouldn't really say that we believe in verbal inspiration, the inspiration of words, but we should say we believe in jot and tittle inspiration, the inspiration of the tiny letters. In the ESV that I've got here, uh, it's not jots and tittles, it's iotas and dots. For truly I say to you, this is Matthew 5.18, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Tiny strokes bind us. 
So the inspiration of scripture therefore descends to the smallest level, so that there's no scope for us thinking, ah, well, we can keep the core and ditch the details, because the God-breathedness of it goes down to the details. One great modern New Testament scholar, F.F. Bruce, said, Jesus wrote no book. But if you go back to Augustine in the 4th, 5th century, he disagrees. He says this. In virtue of the man assumed by him, in other words, having become man, he stands to all his disciples in the relation of the head to the members of his body. Therefore, when those disciples have written matters which he declared and spoke to them, it ought not by any means to be said that he has himself written nothing, since the truth is that his members have accomplished only what they became acquainted with by the repeated statements of the head. For all that he was minded to give for our perusal on the subject of his own doings and sayings, he commanded to be written by those disciples, whom he thus used as if they were his own hands. Isn't that great? There's a uh, reference there, obviously, to the image of uh, the head and the body that Paul uses in 1 Corinthians. And the idea here is that the Lord Jesus Christ as the head is the one who commands, and the members, his apostles who write the, the scriptures, write the New Testament at least, or parts of it at least, are, are therefore writing what he, the head, intends them to write, so that you can say, well, actually, Jesus did write a book. Didn't write it with his own incarnate hand, but he wrote it with his many hands, the hands of his apostles. And that is the consequence of the doctrine of the inspiration of scripture. It is that we have in the scriptures the words of God and we have the words of the risen living Lord Jesus expressed through his apostles. Now again, we return to the same point where I ended the last session. If in the last session we saw that we can't separate Jesus from the Bible because Jesus himself teaches the binding authority of the scriptures, in this one we see that we can't separate Jesus from the Bible and we can't deny the full authority of the Scriptures because the Scriptures are breathed by the Holy Spirit of God. They are inspired. And so we're faced with the same question again. It's the same application as it was at the end of the last session. We need to see what's at stake here. We need to examine ourselves. We need to grasp that here is a wonderful second reason why we must continue to cling to the teaching of scripture and submit to it even if it's uncomfortable because it is the word of God himself what scripture says God says John Murray puts this very strikingly he's talking about the battle for the Bible this is a, a phrase that was quite popular especially in American controversies about the authority of the Bible the battle for the Bible and he says it's not really a battle for the Bible the integrity of our Lord's witness is the crucial issue in this battle of the faith, he says. It's actually a battle about the authority of Jesus and about the authority of the Holy Spirit. If Jesus says, believe the Bible, if the Holy Spirit breathed the Bible, then the battle for the Bible is a battle for Jesus and the Holy Spirit. It's a question of whether we're submitting to Jesus and the Holy Spirit. It's not just about the book. How you treat the Bible is, in effect how you treat the Lord Jesus Christ. 
similar to the point that's made in Isaiah 66, verse 2, where God says, This is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. How you relate to God's word is how you relate to God. So we need to stare again at the things that we find challenging and difficult in the scriptures. We need to resolve to honour the Lord Jesus and to submit to what the Holy Spirit of God has breathed. Let's ask for God's help in doing that. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the glorious gift of the scriptures breathed out across so many centuries through so many different authors by your Spirit. We thank you that their inspiration descends to the detail of words and even strokes of the Hebrew letters. And we pray again that you would help us to submit to their teaching, perhaps especially where it's uncomfortable for our culture and therefore uncomfortable for us. Please would you help us at precisely those points to continue to submit to what you have spoken and thereby to honour your Son, your Spirit and therefore you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.